saw a friend who I hadn't seen, a mutual friend of ours. I hadn't seen her in, I think, four or five years, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, in that sense, a third of the time that we've been friends. So on one hand, you might think, oh, like, are we even going to, like, relate at all? But it was exactly like we just saw each other yesterday. And that's, like, of great comfort. I think it was of great comfort to both of us because a lot of people wonder, like, if I don't see my friends in X amount of time because of geography or because my life has, like, marooned me in some some corner, you know, will they still be my friends? Am I who I used to be? Is that better or worse? Yeah. And so that's really comforting. But then I was, like, asking her about this other person who we were all friends with and she was like no you know after a few years of after college it's just like was clear that we weren't really friends so it's i'm wondering if it's the person i'm i'm thinking of <laughs> probably <laughs> yeah okay probably you can text me yeah um, i will and but which was interesting because it was like it is true you are still who you are to some people some of the time but then some people do like drift and they're not as close i feel that drift I think much less than the average person. I feel like you throw most anyone from my life who I've been close with into a room with me at any point. I feel like I'm ready to get there. Maybe also because I've had a boring few years. But other people, I feel like some people even take pride in like, that was a different me. And I could not have the slightest thing to say to such a person. Yeah, dude, no, I think some people are very much into the idea of I I changed, I'm a different person now. They want to reinvent themselves. Um over and over again and they collect new friends and they discard them on the way. I think some people are like that, but I'm not like that. You're not like that. So that might be why after 10 years of knowing each other, now we're starting a podcast. We have so much left to discover about our unchanging selves. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds good. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This is literally everything. I am Max and you are Ethan. We didn't do that last time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Max and Ethan. We have fairly similar voices, which is one of the requirements of having a podcast. They're they're different enough that you can tell. They're nasal in different ways. Yeah, they're both, you know. I think you got a little more testosterone kicking around your voice than me. Maybe. It's still not, I wouldn't say. I don't know, maybe maybe if it's like per inch of height, like maybe we're like, you know, because you're taller than me. Pound for pound. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Okay, but anyways, just remember, I'm I'm Max. That's Ethan. Most of the listeners at this point probably have no either one or both of us. So, hey, speaking of the listeners, I want to say a profound thank you to everyone who's listened so far, really sincerely, and especially some folks who have been able to give us feedback, positive, negative, neutral, non-binary feedback, all of it. It's been really helpful, and hopefully, we're you know, improving this as a result. Well said. I agree totally. Um, And with that, uh, let's get started with the episode. I wanted to say one programming note. So we're trying a slightly different structure to the episodes right now. We're going to try kind of like a meal, different sized segments. So that little talk we had just now was like the, you know, aperitivo, little cocktail hour before the meal and then we're going to do a shorter kind of small appetizer segment followed by the main course i'm going to just break the fourth wall here max listeners yeah i feel like i was trying to convince max that that's what we should do for a really long time in this one night over text and he was like not budging and then once he came up with that metaphor he was so into it and like this is what we're doing i'm like whatever it takes man i think it's kind of true no appetizers, but I- <laughs> whatever you need Sorry, man. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, whatever I need to get over the hump. 
the the thing is continuing to break the fourth wall you know we have different kind of competencies and we don't want to just do one segment where one person knows a bunch and then is just talking a bunch and the other person doesn't have as much to offer you know so we want to do two segments at least every episode and so that's this is the kind of compromise middle position okay now for the the appetizer course i wanted to talk about the great debate over whether hot dogs our sandwiches and how that illustrates the differences between uh, various schools of medieval scholasticism. And I'm going to try to break down what is scholasticism so that the listener knows I'm going to listen to this shit about some hot dogs, but I'm going to find out about scholasticism. And I want to find out about that because scholasticism is what? Scholasticism refers to basically schools. So it is a term we use for medieval uh, Western European philosophy, and it basically means it was university professors who were practicing it, as opposed to someone like Plato or, or Socrates or Aristotle. They they weren't at universities; they didn't exist yet. They so had tight that's what academies, though, right? They had little academies, yeah. And it's kind of uh, stereotyped as being a very uh, technical, obscure form of philosophy where they had debates over things like how many angels can stand on the head of a pin rather than... That's, that's when that came from, the, the Middle Ages? Yeah, but I'm not so sure about whether that actually happened or whether it was just a kind of not important like illustration that someone gave and then it was used later on as this example of it being petty and not superficial, but not interested in, 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 yeah, irrelevant, not, not interested in significant questions. So it was kind of denigrated from the Renaissance on. And what, now, so what period would you say scholasticism is the thing that I would the say intellectuals the, are doing? Oh, see, I'm not a medievalist, so I'm bad. But I would say definitely from about the 12th through the 15th centuries were when it was at its height. Thomas Aquinas is considered one of the probably the most important scholastic philosopher. His lifetime was from 1225 to 1274, so the 13th century. So that's kind of the height of scholasticism. Yeah, everything tight happened in the 13th century. Yeah. So anyways, let's talk about hot dogs for a second. Ethan, I have a question for you. It's a very annoying question, and everyone loves asking it these days. And the question is, is a hot dog a sandwich? It's pretty simple. It's not a sandwich for two reasons. One is the bread is on the side, so that already removes it a bit from being a sandwich. And also, when I think of a sandwich, I think of spheroid or rectangle type of bread covering or, you know, wheat-based covering. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And hot dog, it's a long cylinder. So those are just two differences. You add them up, and I feel like you're, you're out of sandwich territory. Okay. Very good. So this is exactly the kind of framework that people use to try and answer this question is you choose these criteria, you define what it means to be a sandwich, and you say what the criteria are, and you, and you say whether or not a hot dog meets those criteria. And kind of what bothered me about the whole conversation, I know it's a stupid just joke conversation, but I didn't think it was as interesting or kind of a, it wasn't that rich uh, an area of discussion as people thought. And what I was thinking when I was, you know, getting kind of irritated by everyone thinking this was such a funny conversation to have was, this is actually a pretty good illustration of the difference between realism and nominalism from medieval scholastic philosophy. And I agree with you that a hot dog is not a sandwich, but not necessarily for the reason you gave. 
to me, a sandwich is something that is popularly referred to as a sandwich. There is no category that is sandwich that's hanging over us or transcendent, and then all the different kinds of sandwiches are like within it in some real sense, right? It's just the fact that by convention, we call certain things sandwiches and certain things we don't call sandwiches. Let me stop you right there. What would be a category hanging over us in a transcendent way? What would be that? Okay, well, this is like getting getting into the more universal sense of whether these categories exist is a perfect segue into into the difference between realism and nominalism because uh, realists. Uh, then, then, then wait a second. Wait a second. Okay. 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 Let me think. I mean, what would a category that hangs over us? B. I mean, what kind of categories do we believe in transcendently? I mean, you can say it comes from science. So like certain things, certain kinds of produce are fruits, right? And so those are fruits scientifically because of the part of the plant that they come from and what function they have. But there are other things that we call vegetables, and those don't have any real unity or criteria for them. It's just a, a culinary term that's applied to a certain kinds of fruits, but also root vegetables, things like that, right? I didn't know that. Like what you're saying is that fruit is a more transcendent category than vegetable? Well, it has a basis in science. It's a botanical term. And a ve- vegetable is a, is a culinary term. So it's just kind of a, a quirk of language almost, or right, of, of, so of convention. Will you give me an example of a contrasting example there? Like, like blank other is than fruit. fruits and vegetables? No, 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 specifically of fruits and vegetables. Like blank is a fruit, but not blackberries, but like anything, you know? Well, tomatoes are both fruits and vegetables. So when people argue about whether they're a fruit or a vegetable, they're making this kind of category confusion. Because in, in culinary terms, it's a vegetable, but in botanical terms, it's a fruit. Same and with like zucchinis. Why, why is it a vegetable in culinary terms? That's exactly it. They're just called vegetables because they're like used in savory dishes more often or something so, like so that. So there's no botanical basis for what's a vegetable. Wow. I know that's, I mean, that clears up so much. By well, the way. Do you, consider, do you consider a tomato a vegetable? I think it's too acidic for my throat. <laughs> do you consider zucchinis vegetables? or? Fruits? I think zucchinis are fucking the most disgusting thing ever, but they're vegetables. Okay, so like what what they have in earth. Like zucchinis, I thought vegetables come from earth and fruits come from trees. Yeah, but zucchinis come from vines, as do watermelons and grapes, cherries. Uh, like tomatoes grow on vines. Vines, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So vines are kind of the curveball. <laughs> okay, the, but the you see what I mean. Coming right? out of the earth is meaningless. Yes, like the yes, fact that a the, potato comes out of the earth. Fuck that. It's yeah, not but, why it's a vegetable. Let's take let's take the idea, accept the idea that fruit, that the category fruit comes from science, so it has some like transcendent basis or an objective basis that's universal, right? Whereas vegetables, it depends. People might call things vegetables, and you can kind of pick and choose whether you call things a vegetable. Let's say that these categories don't come from nature, but they're defined by God. Can you accept that? Yeah, let's accept it for now. Let's say that God has created something like human nature. So as part of creating the universe, he created first an idea called human nature. And then all humans, in order to create all the individual humans, he used this idea, this category of human nature, or what a human is, basically, in order to make each individual instance of a human. Yeah, that adds up. So that's what realists... This is such a platonic dialogue. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. like, yeah, boy. It's almost as tedious, yeah. Um, no, 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 it's not tedious. It's like, I like it because it works kind of like like um, like Dipset songs where there's like the ad-libs <laughs> like, all right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, someone should record a reading of Plato's Republic with like dipset ad libs as like the different people in the academy being like, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's all so much that's right. Go on. Yes, I agree. Yeah. So, anyways, that is what I was just saying. That is what realists believe. So, realists believe that categories exist. They're the way that they believed that, you know, categories were the way that God had kind of organized creation. I just want to situate that when we're talking about realists, we're talking about within this larger movement called scholasticism, which is like basically religious cleric intellectuals in Europe, Western Europe. Yeah. The realists within that, not like realism in the 19th century novel or painting. That is part of why people get confused because they, they hear the word realism and they think materialism. But the realism in this, in this case means the idea that universals are real. So there are actually like universal qualities that are shared across all human beings. Now, phenomenalists came after the realists and they said, no, absolutely not. Here's a quote from Wikipedia, because that's all I had to prepare, from about William of Ockham, known for Ockham's razor. He was a famous nominalist. Ockham argued that only individuals existed and that universals were only mental ways of referring to sets of individuals. In that sense, sandwiches don't exist. It's only a construct that we have in our mind to refer to a group of dishes. That That sounds very modern. You know, there's no universal categories. It's all constructs. And I would say that we do live in a kind of nominalist age, for sure. And nominalist meaning something that it means to name, right? Nominalism. Yeah, these things are names. Like the categories are names that we're giving to groups of of individual objects rather than something that have have a reality. So they're kind of anthropogenic, is that if that word exists. Sounds about right. So humans come up with names, and those are nominalists. Or if they believe that there's these universal categories that are really real, they're called realists. And those were the two schools of scholasticism, right? Absolutely. And so does it make sense, like my illustration of oh, how yeah. this applies it, to the hot it, dog it makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, my mind is still reeling from the vegetable thing. Okay. I, I always thought it was, it was tre- like trees versus ground. And I knew that vines were a problem, but I figured <laughs> yeah. that they were a problem that could be sorted out by what, like, whether we claim them as trees or ground. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, just picked, picture, I, th- I thought every vegetable just like, pops out of the ground like a potato. Yeah. And let me just say one thing about why nominalism, like what the basis was for nominalism. I was talking about God earlier and how he created things. Nominalism was based on the fundamental basis of it was the idea of God's omnipotence. And their argument was God doesn't need this kind of interface of universal categories to create each individual thing. He can just create each individual thing because he's totally omnipotent, totally omniscient. He can do whatever he wants, right? So he can create any human however he wants to create it. Or any you don't need to have a shared universal human nature. He could just like be spinning off weird fingerprints on each person. Right. And, and the medieval intellectual edifice was really, a, it was a realist edifice. And it was based on the idea, which you'll see in, in Thomas Aquinas, which is that because God uses these natural laws to create creation, to create the universe, then we as humans can use our natural reason to understand creation and thus understand God. So there's a kind of a, a closeness or intimacy to God, which works through the medium of reason. 
right? Which you can use to like understand natural laws and things. He got that, I feel, just to throw in some Middle Eastern, to decolonize this a little bit. Mm-hmm. He was getting that, I think, a lot from Maimonides, the um, Arab Jewish, you know, Moroccan born, Egyptian adulted um, mm-hmm. physician philosopher, who in turn got a lot of this from Ibn Rushd. Averroes. I mean, Aquinas I used Averroes a lot. I think Averroes is Ibn Rushd. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Averroes is like the Latin, Latinized Ibn Rushd. Ibn Rushd is Averroes in your high school history book. And mm-hmm. that guy is a Muslim Andalusian, which means he's from what is now Spain. And he lived in the 12th century, so like about 100 years before Aquinas. Yes, and a lot of this stuff about natural law comes originally from Aristotle, and then Averroes was the most important commentator on Aristotle in the golden age of Islamic philosophy, and Aquinas used him a lot in his Summa Theologica, which he he refers to Averroes as the commentator, and Aristotle as the philosopher. So those are like the two of the biggest sources he used. So he so he cites Averroes like explicitly. He's like, I got it from this from this repeatedly. Guy. Yes. Does he cite Maimonides as like an intermediary? Or I don't so think so, but oh, I do yeah. think that Jews. I mean, Jews were really important in this interface between Islamic Golden Age philosophy and then medieval early humanism because they were translators of from the Arabic into into Latin, especially in like southern France and stuff. But in any case, nominalism says, no, you have no access to the mind of God, and it created this distance between God and humans. And the idea that a lot of people make is that because reason was separated from God, it began to kind of become independent from this idea of one creation that's ruled over by God, and it became almost like this is the beginning of the secularization of reason. Well, if you can't, like, I know in Maimonides, reason is, there's this thing called, um, uh, it's this Latin term called like unio mystica, which is like a sort of mystical union of the human mental faculties and the divine mind. That's and exactly that, it, yeah. In my mind, is that it is possible. It's really hard, and he doesn't like encourage mysticism. He's a rationalist for kind of day to day life, but that theoretically it is possible through your reason to merge with the mind of God. So it's interestingly those who are taking reason out of that, who it, which seems to be distancing God from a point of more reverence. They're saying, oh, you guys think you can get so close to God? No, God's like super, super, super far, even further than you thought. And yet it's that reverence and distance that then opens the space to sort of, now reason's just like sitting on the table and it, it's going to slide off the table into like secularism. That's like a mixed bad metaphor, but does that... That's, access, that's absolutely what I was trying to say. Yes, thanks for summing it up. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end, but we can um, transition into our next segment by saying we're going to be talking about some other categories and whether they're essential or not, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's definitely essentialism in there. Just to our, our, our medieval manuscript, Wikipedia, there's this great quote I just saw, which is that Maimonides said after he read Averroes, um, been rushed. He said that Averroes was quote extremely right. <laughs> really? Like, like, wait a second. What language did he write in? Well, English. He wrote the Wikipedia, <laughs> right? Of course. Yeah. He must. No. Have um, he was. He was probably writing in Judeo Arabic, which is like Arabic with Hebrew letters. Okay. Interesting. Uh, this is a letter. He did write stuff in Hebrew too, but um, that was more like legal stuff. Anything that was like correspondence or or kind of popular philosophy, which he did a lot of, would have been in Arabic. How do you say extremely in Arabic? 
let's not quiz my <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, my it probably means very, hours. like, whatever, it doesn't matter. But no, it's probably more than Jitdun. Jitdun is just like a lot or very. Mm. Will you say, will you just say one thing about, so everyone's started with hot dogs and, and learned stuff about scholastics and like why you think it's worthwhile to know about scholastics and the difference between nominalists and realists in the present besides for the hot dog debate? Other than just like it's important, like knowledge is a great thing. The reason I wanted to talk about it was twofold. The first reason was hopefully to shut down this hot dog sandwich debate once and for all because I'm just sick of reading about it. It's it's basically cringe for me as, as far as I'm concerned. And secondly, I always thought that the realism versus nominalism and scholasticism thing was something that I found intimidating and it seemed very obscure um, when you read about it superficially. And I thought maybe, you know, people might like to know just so they can keep that in their pocket, you know, what the difference is between the two. It's also, I think, like, I think yeah, the Middle Ages get, like, really short shrift a lot. It's kind of like, you know, I think a lot of people's, um, I want to actually do an episode on this. It's like, where does your knowledge of history come from? The things that get hit really hard in your K-12 education are, like, Greece, Rome, Renaissance, and then the Middle Ages are, like, the Dark Ages. And in not understanding the way thinking and philosophical traditions coursed their way through the, the Latin Middle Ages into the Renaissance and modernity, it actually I think, gives people a very faulty setup for understanding like modernity, which is super relevant because we're in it still. And it's also Eurocentric, right? I mean, I remember reading a Cat Stevens or Yusuf Islam interview where he was made a very good point where he said, we talk about the Dark Ages. It wasn't the Dark Ages. It was the, go- it was the Golden Age of Islam. And they, and they put our, the our quote-unquote, mm-hmm. our, our intellectual culture to shame in that period. So, and that was the conduit through which uh, Greek philosophy found its way into Western Europe, for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then I think at the end of that quote, he said, now will someone off someone rush? I just have to think that up as a, as a rush to you, acolyte. Right on. essential categories that also have to do with the long distant past and the very present present yes so max do you want to maybe give a cursory summary of this article that i sent you about hawaii yeah so ethan sent me um an opinion column a very long opinion uh from the sunday review in the new york times um it's about a month old it's called want to be less racist move to hawaii the aloha spirit may hold a deep lesson for all of us. And it's about it's about race and Hawaii, talking about how it's so different from uh, mainland America in terms of race relations, uh, partially because there are so many mixed race people there. Um, it's also accompanied by photographs of like extremely hot Hawaiian people, uh, <laughs> and it like lists all their backgrounds, which is nice. 
Um, and it, and it kind of, it offers like a number of different angles of looking at race and also how it operates in Hawaii and, and, um, how Hawaii is different from the mainlands before arriving at the end saying that there's this thing called the Aloha spirit, which is a, an idea of kind of hospitality, the importance of getting along together and cooperation, which was comes from the fact that it's an island and that there were limited natural resources and people realized that they had to exchange rather than compete. Um, and that is uh, contrasted. And so her idea is that, his idea, sorry. His, uh, idea. Um, his idea is that <sighs> this kind of filtered down into the present. Um, and, and then he, in the very end, he contrasts it with a very different model of the understanding of natural resources and lands and all that, which existed on the mainland. And I think you have a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I got, I got a lot to say. That was a great cursory summary. Thanks. Um, yeah, so this guy, his name's uh, Moises Velasquez Manoff, and he's, um, in, in the spirit of these photographs that, that put in parentheses everyone's ethnic background, he's half Jewish, half Puerto Rican. Mm. And I've read stuff by him before. He's a science journalist. And he, he wrote like a whole book on like autoimmunity in the like deep Amazon. Apparently they have great immunity mm. there mm. because, you know, a lot of exposure to stuff. Anyway, but yeah, this article was like, like Max said, it was huge. And, um, and it, I think it like circulated as this, one of those like most read articles uh, because it's, uh, he's starting with this psychology professor named uh, Dr. Kristen Pauker, who is in Hawaii. And she has done a lot of um, kind of social science research that shows that uh, children in Hawaii, you know, basically grow up to be less racist or less essentialist in their ideas about race. And so it's not to say that they don't see race. And in fact, in some ways, they see it more than we see it on the mainland. But that uh, in, in the view of her research, because being multiracial and multiethnic is uh, much more prevalent in Hawaii, it has the highest percentage of mixed race people, including our uh, previous president. It's the only, I think it's the only state where whites are a minority. Yeah. Um, or maybe Texas, but no, um, I think California might be. I mean, they're a plurality. It, yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah, exactly um, plurality, not a minority. And so there, you know, so there's a few of these kind of interesting claims. Can I can I um, back up? So so you said yeah, you, sure. Yeah. So I want to unpack like the idea of essentialism with race. So they see race and they're aware of it, and they also, as the article discusses, they're aware of ethnic stereotypes and they actually make more jokes about it in a in a kind of unwoke way than is considered acceptable on the mainland so what does it mean that they're not essentialist uh it's that they don't view race as a singular unitary factor in a person's identity that determines everything about them you know that it is an expression of inherent qualities and all those things i'm saying they don't do uh are features of racist and going back to the 19th and 18th centuries, racialist ideas and discourses, which were invented in the, in the modern era. Mm -hmm. And he makes a, a great point about that, talking about how, you know, Greece had second-class citizens and Greece had slaves, but a person's race, which is um, what we would now think of as like their, you know, ethnic origin, like where they're from and, you know, what part of the planet they're from had nothing to do with those categories. You could, uh, and it was the same in the Roman world. Uh, you could be, and 
like look like someone from Egypt or look like someone from Scotland and be Roman if you were a citizen of the Roman Empire. And you could look like that person's neighbor, but if you were not Romanized, then you were a barbarian. So it wasn't, you know, it was kind of based on your political uh, affiliation yeah. with the empire. Yeah. Just a short tangent. I mean, so there's different, yeah. So as you said, there's different models over time. Um, but even in the modern era, there is different models. I mean, in Brazil, they had a, they had a, racial system, which is highly stratified, stratified, right? So like with whites at the top mm -hmm. and blacks at the bottom, but in between there was so much, there was so much mixing going on in Brazil, as opposed to in the, in the U S that it was a much more fluid idea. And someone who was mixed race could actually achieve the legal status of a white person and all of the, you know, rights pertaining to that status, basically by, by, by rising up high enough and and then just maybe purchasing like a, a a piece of paper which said more or less this person is white. So I remember learning about that wow. as a what and when when was that in the nineteenth century and and so I remember learning about that like as a sophomore in in college and I thought that was a good you know illustration of how race could be much more fluid in in different contexts. But I mean, it's still this was still like a race a racist exploitative system, but it was just less essentialist, I would say, than the American system is, which is more like a one drop idea of if you're if you're part if if you're if you're mixed race but you're partly minority, then you're considered to be a member of that minority group, right? Yeah. And in fact he, he quotes um uh, a person who um let's see, uh, Akimi Glenn, who uh, lives in Honolulu and her, her family's from North Carolina, and she's saying that on the mainland U.S., she's just African-American. Yeah, exactly. And people only identify her as Black, but she has Chinese ancestry, Native American ancestry, European ancestry. And um, no, there's no room in America for her to claim her Chinese ancestry. But in Hawaii, it's, it's um, quite an obvious thing that a person could have African and Chinese ancestry. And so, like, the demographics in Hawaii, um, it's uh, the largest group, the plurality group is uh, Asian Pacific Islander. It's like 37%. And then mixed race is the, um, or actually whites are next at 23 and mixed race is next at 19. So it's, it's very com different uh, racial mix than in the United States, you know, the 48 continental contiguous mm -hmm. states. And so I, I you know, I wanted to like, that's interesting on in its own right. And I want to investigate some of the the claims about you just know, to interrupt you one more time like a great yeah. illustration yeah. of that essentialism like that woman was talking about like how tiger woods is considered the greatest black golfer of all time but he's not considered you know one of the greatest asian golfers of all time or greatest asian athletes of all time in america you know what i mean yeah yeah you know and there's a lot to say about like america's history of racial essentialism i'm going to sort of be using this to say certain things about it um then the two of us will discuss right certain aspects of it, but within the frame of this, like, Hawaii's kind of unique examples. And so I want to say, first of all, that he does a good job in the article of, at times, you know, being like, listen, it's not like Hawaii is the utopia. There is still racism there in, in various directions. And, um, and another thing that he doesn't do, but that I would push back against, is that a lot of this is based on some social science methods that I find just worth questioning a little bit. Yes, absolutely. So talk about how um, when white mainland students go to Hawaii, like if you give them this kind of test, you know, this like multiple, or it's like a, a sliding scale, you know, do you think this or that, a one to 10 scale? 
and your answers basically determine kind of how much you see race, that they score lower on it once they've been in Hawaii versus when they first get there. So their kind of racial lenses allegedly become less potent the longer that these white students are in Hawaii. And, they, and he goes into, well, is that also self-selecting, that the type of white students who would go to Hawaii in the first place are more open-minded? But it's also like, I don't know, I think that we should be cautious about how much we can learn from surveys and like ratings and multiple choice tests, because this actually goes back to a, an issue with medieval thought, which is positivism. Um, Max, do you want to critique positivism no in a, you, I, you I think you do a much better version. <laughs> um i have a great one in my mind but why don't you go ahead no give, give us the great no one i was being mind. sarcastic oh, oh, oh yeah that's great yeah just like the idea that well so positivism is, is a legacy of the enlightenment and and modern thought and especially modern science and the idea positive and negative here it doesn't mean good or bad it means more like you could almost think of it as adding or subtracting to zero so if you posit something, there are vegetables, that is a category, and there are fruits, that's a ca category. Nowhere in the world are these categories, you know, no banana has grows out of a tree with the word like fruit stamped on it in every language. We've created, we've posited a category called fruit, and that's what we use. And um, so the sciences are depend upon positivism, that we must posit certain premises and then conduct our experiments according to those ideas. But it's a really long story, and we'll explore it more. But like uh, in the humanities, in the last 40 years, we've come to critique a lot of that positivism that you can kind of draw up certain conditions for experimenting and testing hypotheses. And then what do you know that your hypotheses are correct according to the criteria you posited? Yeah, I just wanted to say, I mean, it is interesting. He like those parts where he was talking about the social science approach to to racism were the weaker parts. But then he had these historical arguments that talked about race as part of a system of economic exploitation, which is more of a yeah left wing, I would argue, and also historical understanding of what race is. But then he keeps circling back, or at least he, he kind of introduced it, and then he circles back later to this, yeah, the psychological, um, anthropological, maybe not anthropological, but sociological, sociological idea that understanding race is about measuring individuals' internal attitudes about members of other races, right? You know what I mean? And that is not... That's how it works, and that's how you... Yeah, and, and, and the way that you fix it is by, you know, um, diagnosing it and then, and then applying therapeutic courses to people, which is supposed to cure them of these internal opinions, right? And it's even like the thing that I found really kind of weird was when he said um, that by being flexible about race and identity, like it could help you like be more flexible in your thinking elsewhere. So like, oh, yeah, not only will you be less racist, but also you'll be more likely to be able to join the cognitive elite of the company of the country, sorry, and, and make more money. Well, company too, he says like diverse companies make more money, diverse countries do better, which is like, uh, what about like Sweden, Norway, and Denmark? Yeah. Okay. Uh, diverse juries give fair verdicts. That, that, that stuff I would say is actually maybe like, some of that stuff is easier to prove than, than the the scale yeah. stuff. Like there's this thing he talks about called the uh, race conception scale, widely used questionnaire. And it's on a seven point scale. You rate a statement like racial groups are primarily determined by biology. And so if you put seven, you're probably like really racist, you know, or something. 
And so, and I agree with Max. I think there's there's been a lot of these kind of questionnaire, like especially in the huge debate, like it's as big a part of the internet almost as porn, which is were Trump's voters motivated by racism or economic anxiety? Mm-hmm. And you have to pick, you know? And a lot of the literature on both sides of that debate cites these kind of surveys where like someone goes in and like, puts a seven to a question and, and now we know for sure that they're racist in like this exclusive way. So I, I have skepticism about that, but I, I am interested, like Max said, uh, maybe more in the his, historical thing. So what may not be clear yet, and so I'll make it clearer now, why is Hawaii uh, ethnically and racially diverse? Really quick history and summary of that. Um, so, you know, uh, first um, humans arrive at Ho- in Hawaii, they think uh, probably about 800, 700 um, of the common era could have been a bit earlier. Um, it's one of actually the later uh, sites of uh, Polynesian settlement, in part because it is so fucking far from like every other bit of land on in the Pacific Ocean or elsewhere. Uh, I think it's the most isolated like human um, settlement in the world. Well, I thought or maybe like Easter so, Island was a little bit farther out, but it did not, you know, Easter Island did not make it. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's considered like as as maybe you have to cross a certain population threshold yeah, yeah. there. But um, anyway, so like it's um, it, in the late 18th century, so like about a little over a thousand years later, Captain James Cook and the British explorers arrive. Early 1800s, missionaries arrive from the U.S. and by the late 19th century, there's this system of agricultural plantations that are managed by Anglo's, by uh, whites from, in most cases, I think the U.S. I, I, I'm not I'm not an expert in Hawaiian, so if there's imprecision in any of this, I apologize. I'm going to try to only say things I can be precise about. But there's plantation, there's landowners. They're like, you know, making sugar and salt and a bunch of other stuff. And they devise a system that they think, you know, if we just use one population as our workforce, they will eventually organize and rise up and overthrow us because of, this is a, a distribution of wealth and resources that the, that the population won't like. So they start to bring in a, a motley mix of immigrants from the Philippines, from China, from Japan, um, who are kind of labor migrants who are stationed at different points in this hierarchy of the plantation system. And, and, and in, the, in the meantime, like 90% of the native population like dies of disease within the first like hmm. century of, of uh, European arrival and contact. So the native population in Hawaii is actually, um, it's not as small as it is in, in the continental US, but it's not that huge. It's like 6%. Hmm. So Max, do you want to um, talk then like about the kind of labor, the 20th century labor history? And, and how yeah, that so um, I don't know how much do I remember. I mean, he talks about how in the, it's, it's after World War II, right? That yeah, there's different moments, but you can kind of just get oh the yeah, general, the like, international uh, yeah, the justice. ILWU, right? The International Longshoremen and uh, uh, Warehouse Union, which is based in um, San Francisco and is actually a pretty well known union, um, radical uh, radical union that's organized all sorts of people all over the place. They started organizing dock workers in Hawaii, and that created the kind of conditions for for cross racial um, class solidarity. Um, and so, 
in order to create these unions, it also required um, a lot of collaboration um, and inclusion. They, they were very careful about inclusion in building these unions. Um, and so that is a more recent historical basis, um, so argues this, this article, for the relative racial harmony in, in Hawaii. So the idea is basically an economic one that, that you know, Racism is uh, a system which is used to, to divide the working class so that the ruling class can more easily exploit them, and that once they the various um, ethnic groups within the working class realize their shared interests and work together, then they can you know not only win um, economic uh, battles with the bosses, but they can also create a, a more harmonious um, racial uh, relations. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and he gives a few examples of that. So, everything we've done here, we, we've kind of set the table for, you know, what this minimum need to knows about Hawaii to, you know, for just a few other ideas that I want to toss back and forth, Max. So, the first thing, so what interests me about Hawaii, in Hawaii, I was just there um, in April, and I've been there once before, like five and a half years ago, and I've been to um, Kauai and Oahu. Uh, in Oahu, I was in Honolulu. And so I'm no Hawaii expert. You know, I haven't spent a ton of time there. I haven't studied it in, like, my academic training. Um, but the reason it interests me is because it's a lot of some of the that dynamics that are at play in the world that I study, which is, you know, the Middle East and its relationship with Europe, and then some dynamics that are, like, completely not there. In, in what I study. And, and I'm like super interested in how certain concepts work in, in, this, in this context where, for one thing, there's this cultural tourism thing. So, you know, in the Middle East, cultural tourism is a big thing. You go to a place and you sort of ask, ask with your money, um, so you have some leverage, for the person in that place to perform their native culture for you. And, you know, so in Morocco... Um, or it's different parts of the Middle East, like maybe a, there's like a, a restaurant while belly dancing or the guy who sells you the carpet and he tells you this story about, you know, the intricate process through which the carpet was made and his family's tradition and carpet weaving and all this. And then you come home in the Westerner and you're like, oh, I've like experienced this other thing. So you've kind of purchased this commodity, which is an experience of another mm. culture, you know, and you bring it back with you. And in Hawaii, the typical, that's been a big part of the marketing, tourism's their, I think, number one industry, and a big part of the marketing, you know, is like the luau, and at the luau, and I've never been to one of these, but I've heard they're kind of insufferable. It's like, cause at least for, in our current politics, it's really fucked up, which is just like, you know, people in traditional Hawaiian dress come and explain all these aspects of the Hawaiian uh, native traditions, but they're explaining it like to primarily white guests, like at hotels, you know, as sort of like entertainment between the appetizers. Yeah, after the golf. Yeah, you know, after the golf um, that was on their land. So that dynamic is interesting to me. And this is, is sort of like, and, and, and the author talks about this, is like, could the racial harmony become a sort of more sophisticated version of this identity-based tourism? Like, come perform, now instead of just performing your like luau and, and the, the, the dance with like the, yes. you know? So go, yeah, yeah. So you go there and you like instead of consuming this um, artificial version of 
prehistoric culture you like come and you absorb by osmosis their enlightened racial um thinking yeah i mean and it's an artificial and so and this is the other thing is and i'm not just here to like like take shots at blue house <laughs> you know or carpets like by the way like, i mean like i'm a westerner who studies well i have like family ties there or whatever but you know i'm a westerner who studies non-western places i there's no like it's like i'm not out of this i got turkish rug i got a moroccan rug you know try to bring some different kind of consciousness to that and if you ever want to get like really checked on this like read a small place which is a very short book by jamaica kincaid about caribbean tourism from a kind of mm. caribbean perspective great great book but um what's there's all these things at play both in that cultural tourism which we can now kind of critique as being like a bit gauche, you know, and I want to put that alongside some of what we were discussing last week, which is like these indigeneity debates, which are like, what do whites um, in the Americas owe to native peoples? How can native peoples maintain their cultures and their ways of life? And how are the history of native peoples reconstructed in the present? Who gets to tell their story? Do they tell it as a luau? Do they tell it in some indigenous way? Is it told by a college professor in a, in a classroom? All those debates, and what I see as like a sort of common variable is the emphasis on authenticity. Mm. Authenticity is what is being sought from both directions. And it's, you know, sort of like, it's really the currency. Beneath the experience is the idea that you've come in contact with something authentic. Yes. And and part of the reason people get so maybe put out by these things like, oh, you know those posters of the girls dancing in the hula skirts when you get off the plane? Those aren't authentic. Even that critique comes from a place of, I want the really authentic shit. Don't give me the tourism poster. Give me, like, what's really authentic? And that seems to me to be a huge preoccupation in, like, American thought and, and in American tourism. But I think it's also sort of, it has, it expands into the colonial spaces and then becomes a measure of, of a group's own authenticity. Mm. What, what do you think Interesting. about that? Interesting. I had to think about that. I was just thinking, I mean, I've, I've, I'm on the record. I put it on Twitter, but I think that um, indigeneity is going to be the, the, the new thing in the next decade. It's going to be the, Oh yeah. It's, it's absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, it's still on the margins now. I mean, I think it's going to be the gender of, so gender was huge this decade. It, it was on the margins. It was an academic kind of fringe topic and it just became so mainstream. Um, and I, and I think that that's the same thing's going to happen with indigeneity. It's going to become a huge topic and there's going to be lots of new terminologies and taboos or whatever rules that are going to be introduced and people are going to get really mad about them. But I do think that there's going to be also um, a lot of progress made, hopefully. And I do think that the um, the pipeline protests might be looked back on as like a turning point on that. Um, well, what's interesting, um, my girlfriend, or in the more correct gender parlance, <laughs> my partner, uh, has done a lot of work, as she's in public health, and has done a lot of work in Native American communities, and particularly at the, in the Navajo Reservation, which is the largest reservation, I think, in the country, because it covers yeah, a it is, chunk it of is. Arizona, it's the biggest some of New Mexico. Country. And, you know, there's this thing when you come back 
and you've been there, from people who haven't been there, she gets asked the same type of questions. And a lot of them basically boil down to questions about authenticity. And so she refers to like someone she was talking to. Well, were they a real Native American? Like what percentage Native American, you know? And, and there's this whole, you know, like if it's diluted, then it's not really real. And maybe their claims aren't really as valid. But if, it, if they're on a reservation, then that's like the real thing, um, which is, of course, belies the fact that there's Native Americans yeah. in cities. Um, I'll shout out to another novel, There, There by Tommy Orange, um, which she, she strongly recommended. came out last year, I think, um, about Native Americans in Oakland. You may have heard of Oakland from having seen it across <laughs> yeah, the Yeah, I'm familiar. I've heard of it. Um, so that, um, currency, you know, it's, I, I just think it's a dangerous thing. I mean, I don't know if the, how, like the factual basis of this, but when I was in Hawaii the first time, they're saying, you know, because the Hawaiian people were, you know, largely like mass death and, and slaughter and removal from their land and all that by, by the whites. And now there's 6% of the population that there are schools where they're, trying to, you know, teach Hawaiian, reteach Hawaiian culture to many people. And they'll, they'll even be like exclusively in the Hawaiian language. Um, but those schools, you have to have like a certain blood percentage Hawaiian mm. ancestry. Like it, I don't know if it's over 50 or 75%, you know, so if you're like an eight, one eighth Hawaiian, you couldn't go. I, I'd be curious, like what, where the, the factual basis of that is, but nonetheless, like you, you see how this like can slip backwards in it, it, it's a difficult thing and it's it's a thing that i'm very familiar with i think that we in the jewish community get hit on this mm. from both directions where when there are efforts to do things that will ensure the continuity of jewish culture and by that i mean that whatever jewish civilization has given to us that like at least some of it continues mm. into the future we're often attacked for being insular and that we think we're better than everyone. And why, um, why do we have such high barriers um, to the outside world? It's, you know, in, in the we, especially as the Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox community, who are very invested in continuity and in reproducing a culture that was nearly eliminated, in, in our case, in the Holocaust. Um, you can get hit from that angle. But, um, you know, but the flip side is, if you don't take those efforts and your culture is on the verge of extinction, how can it survive? And so that's really challenging, but on either side of that, there's the danger in kind of in the first accusation of slipping into a kind of group purist. Yeah. Our group must mm. remain pure. Yeah, I mean, I think that in terms of, um, I, I think the concept in terms of who's a member and who's not uh, with indigenous groups in the States is that each each group, nation or tribe, however they describe themselves, they they are sovereign, so they get to decide for themselves who's in. So they have roles, basically, and you can apply to get on. Um, and they do a little, I think, genealogical research, um, not genetic research, I don't think, and determine um, whether your claim of, for example, Cherokee heritage or whatever is, is valid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's, that's basically how they, I don't know all of them, but, but many indigenous people in, in this country, like understands what it means to be indigenous. And that's part of the reason why, like people were so mad at Elizabeth Warren first for coming out with this Elizabeth DNA Warren. test that said, oh yeah, well, I had a descendant that makes me part native. And, and they just said, well, no, it, it doesn't. If you're native, then you're a member of this community. 
right? It doesn't mean you have to live on the reservation. It, you can live wherever you want, but but there is a formal way of of it's. I guess it's kind of just legal. Like you, you're either on the rolls or you're not. But yeah. So I mean, this is. I mean, the whole incident. It, it is like a very interesting idea, and like the relationship between an indigenous people and the land is also something that's really interesting to me. Yeah. I want to, I want to um, go, because that's something that I noticed, and I think a lot of people would notice is, I mean, that they have a very different relationship with lands than, than, than other Americans do. We Americans who are descended from, from people who came here somewhere or another in that almost always when you hear about a dispute over lands, you hear that the that the indigenous groups and Native Americans are, are refer to it as sacred, and you kind of think, well, wait a second, is is everything sacred? And it kind of seems like a little bit like, well, yeah, most of it is sacred to them. Um, the whole land is kind of permeated, and the relationship to the land is like permeated by divinity and sacrality, and it's just something that we can't like we can't understand almost. Um, so that's something I noticed that I think probably is like pretty, um, you know, obviously people who get get annoyed by the whole gender uh, discourse from this decade. I think that that's going to be one of the things that one of the kind of bludgeons that people hit it with and say, oh, you just think everything is sacred. Like, what is this tree sacred? Oh, is that, you know, hole in the ground sacred? And I think that that might be one angle of attack by people who aren't aren't with um, the indigenous rights movement. Yeah, that I mean, that's an interesting this is a really interesting prediction. I think that like, well, I, yeah, I want to switch it to switch conversation for a second, not switch, really take up what you were saying about like the land, you know, mm, go and, for it. and in this, I'm actually, it's actually going to circle around to Israel, Palestine, like everything. Like, <laughs> wow. Of course. Yeah. Or the Holocaust. Yeah. 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 It's all the same. So you're in Hawaii. Have you been to Hawaii? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That I'm those things. I'm not making fun of their language. I'm that's a South Park reference where like all these white people who've lived in Kauai for like 20 years are being like really punctilious about the pronunciation yes. and like claiming it. Um, that is real. I that think. is so real. Yeah. So okay, Max, you're in Hawaii. Let's say you're in a, like a very more of the natural part, like not Honolulu, and you look out at the mountains. Are you thinking, wow, this is just a beautiful landscape? Like, this is nature apart from, I'm, you know, I'm getting out of my city. I live in a big city and it's really crowded. And now I'm in nature apart from human society. Or are you thinking about, and this is like each person's different and there's not a right answer. Like, are you thinking about the history of the people that like lived on or near that beautiful mountain? I mean, to be fair, probably <clears throat> more the latter, although I know that that is not the case. It's, it, it, um, well, I'm, I was going to make a point, but I'm sure you're going to get there in a second. So I'll just let you keep going. Oh, really? Oh, oh, so, well, you're saying it's it's the latter because you're like an historian. Oh, sorry. I meant to say the former. Yeah. Unfortunately, oh. when I look at a mountain, like when I look out on the mountains of Kauai, I'm like, this is beautiful, unspoiled nature. It's so nice to get away from civilization. Yes. Even though I know better, right? And knowing better is... Like- knowing that these lands, these supposedly unspoiled lands have been under constant cultivation you know, for, for eons. And that as soon as people arrive, they interact with, with nature in ways that we don't, we don't understand. And I think that that's, that's been a constant theme in the way Westerners think about lands that they're colonizing. I mean, you take, uh, for example, the Central Valley in California, people 
came and they said, this is such a beautiful, fertile place. It's almost like it's a garden. It's just like this natural garden of Eden that's so beautiful and perfectly put together and like an and awesome for, you know, being a, an agriculturally productive area. And they didn't realize that the reason it looked like that is because the people who lived there already made it like that and they were um, maintaining it that way. Yeah, yeah, that's so, yeah. There's a lot in, in, in that I want to like unpack, as we say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you look at the mountains and like, you know, you, the unspoiled, you know, um, virgin nature you know, can be like sexualized, you know, or there's this, I think there's this also romantic idea. If the people are thought of, they're thought of as being part of nature. They're not, they're not thought of as society the way we are. Yes, Absolutely. Um, you know, they're they're just like like a beautiful bird or whatever. You know, they're in such harmony with it that they just vanish into it. And so, in academia, in the last, this is a bit more recent than a, we often. I talk about a lot of turns that began in like the seventies. This one's even more recent. Um, it's really picked up steam in the last ten or twenty years. Settler colonialism. Mm. So that's like this paradigm that it's different than colonialism, where the British send colonists to Virginia or Massachusetts Bay. Uh, But those colonists report back to the empire, you know, and ultimately they're there for the financial benefit of the empire. Mm -hmm. In in settler colonialism, the settlers who have been sent by the empire break off from the empire. And they say, you know, we can do this better ourselves, or they have whatever ideological, political justification for declaring themselves independent. And then they look to the land that they have now settled. And this, um, there's a Latin term called terra nullius, mm-hmm. nullius. It's, um, it, which was like a legal British term, I think originally applied to Australia, which means like empty land. This land is empty. It is ownerless. And we are therefore have the right to start owning it, cultivating it, whatever. And if anyone gets in our way, they're kind of stealing our property because it's, it's not, it's ownerless. And so of course that paradigm applies to, you know, the, the U S genocide of, of North America manifest destiny and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I wanted to say, I wanted to add, it's it's also contrasted. I mean, you talked about the political, I mean, uh, the political relationship between the settlers and, and the, the mother country. Um, but it's also a big part of what it is contrasted with is other forms of colonialism or empire where you send out a much smaller number of settlers or not settlers. They're not thought of as settlers. They go and they create systems of extraction, for example. So they form like only the very upper crust and they exploit the place for its, you know, natural resources or whatever. Instead, yeah. as opposed to like creating a new settler society, society. where you yeah. take yeah. the land, you take the money instead, or the oil, yeah. or whatever. The, the, or the resource. Yeah. yeah. It's an, like like the Dutch in Indonesia or something. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and so, but what's interesting is that, that that ideology of this is blank, and then the ideology that we bring today as tourists has, you know, overlaps. Yes. And we're in, you know, hopefully tourists from America aren't going there being like, you know, we really need to take more of this land from the native Hawaiians, you know, like 6% of the population that's left. But that, that moment of like, looking in the, at the beautiful nature, what are the real, I, I want to like, this conversation, these conversations in academia, I think often just like surge to just like, 
let's yell at all these fucking like white people from a few hundred years ago who are dead, you know? And like, if you're not mad at them, like, I don't know how to convince you to be mad because you should be, Mm -hmm. but, but I want to just like get beyond that to what are the questions? The questions are, um, how long have people been here? How long have humans been here? Where did they come from? Does this place belong to them or to nobody or, you know, to whom does this place belong? And who, what people belong to this place? That's what's at issue in settler colonialism, but it's also what's at issue in like a romantic, romantic. <laughs> I, I ever since the podcast, I like don't know how to pronounce these kind of words. Romanticization mm-hmm. of, of indigeneity. I remember when I found out that like people had only in quotes been in Hawaii for you know, something like thirteen hundred years. You know, I'm like, oh, I thought they'd been here for like eons and eons, Mm. you know, like New Zealand apparently wasn't populated until like uh, 800 years ago. Mm. And and, and those were some of the arguments that the original colonists used is, you know, these people don't have history here. You know, they kind of, they're, what's the word when you go from place to place? Nomadic. They're no, they're nomads. They're not tied to the land. You know, and that of course, is a question that I wonder about because the, the the idea behind indigeneity is that indigeneity gives you sovereignty over the land, which is fair mm-hmm. enough. Um, we live on stolen lands. That is something that I, I don't think you can really argue with. But then you, the, it's still the question of who is indigenous and at what point do you become indigenous to a certain piece of the land like you know these societies they weren't completely nomadic they had a connection to the land but there were shifts and changes right i mean the sioux for example they weren't originally from like where they are now right they were from further east i think and they moved west obviously fleeing from from americans but then they conquered lands f- further west from other tribes Right. And so then does that mean because they defeated those tribes and were there, it's almost like what's interesting is that indigeneity, it basically like whoever's there at the point of encounter with imperialism is the group that is indigenous to a, to a piece of land. But, but that moment of contact can be secondhand and indirect, you know? So when, when, when the native, when the Lakota are moving West and invading people who have yet to have contact with, um, white settlers, but isn't that even the fact that they're on the move a form of contact? It and, is, but I would this, say that this, like the 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 area where they would be considered to be indigenous to is where the is further west now. It's not where they were originally. So, and the people yeah. who they displaced, I don't know what happened to them, but they're not certainly they're not considered to have that same relationship with the land where they lived before before the Sioux came or Lakota came. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through like three really quick grab bag examples from around the world okay. to make to make different points. And the third one's Israel Palestine. Of course. So the first is basically similar to what you're saying. In in South Africa, um, like the Zulu Wars, which were fought in the southern part of South Africa, displaced a group that I believe was called the Indabele tribe, and displaced them into what is now Zimbabwe, where they then came into conflict with like a tribe that had been living in what is now Zimbabwe for much longer, the Shona people. And like, what's the nature of that conflict? Because there's no white people there yet. Eventually the white people come and establish an apartheid thing. But even before the white people are there, there's this uh, intra-African 
uh, tribal war. And sometimes those type of conflicts were, were then used by imperialists to justify the imperial project, which is to say, hey, we're rescuing you from these like savage neighbors you have. And so in uh, Morocco, the French were very invested in the idea of the Berbers, mm. the Amazigh is the proper term, which are the people who pre-existed the Arabs in North West Africa. And what the French were kind of trying to cultivate in cultivating their, these people's identity, and they're a real people with real traditions and history, but they also wanted to graft onto that this idea that the Arabs are foreign invaders. So in the worst case scenario, us, the French, are no, we're not any worse than the Arabs. We're foreign invaders, but so were they. And if anything, maybe we're a little bit better because we're going to like remove their, their yoke and favor you, you know? Oh. And, and in the last example, so the reason a lot of this interests me is, is in Israel-Palestine and settler colonialism is, is very like, you're talking about indigeneity becoming hot here in the next decade, but in the study of Israel-Palestine, it's like hot in this decade. Yeah, absolutely, and, yeah. You hear it all the time. And yeah, the, the guy, this scholar, um, Lorenzo Veracini, who he wrote like the intro to settler colonialism theory book like in 2010. And like his previous book was about uh, settler colonialism in Israel. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I have some trouble with that term in Israel because of its relationship to empire. And I'm not going to get in that debate, but what in the sort of uh, Zionist propaganda that I was exposed to when I was like a young Zionist propagandist or whatever <laughs> in, in high school or something, things that they would bring up was, well, the Palestinians aren't really from there. They're from Egypt and they're from Jordan and they're from Iraq. And then they all moved there when the Jews moved there and made the land good. And then there was like this population boom because there was economic opportunity. And historically, there's truth to the fact that there was in-migration of Arabs from what was not historically Palestine to Palestine. But the, but the point should, shouldn't be only someone who can prove that they were here since time immemorial gets the indigenous token or gets that card. And then when they play that card, they can trump your card. Yeah. But no one should be deprived of their property and inhabitants, you know, because of another group's needs, regardless of indigeneity or, or, or the length of indigeneity. I think that that is really the core point, but it gets missed a lot. And then people fight over all these, these other kind of proxy fights, but it's like, whether, let's take a Palestinian person uh, who's displaced by the foundation of Israel, whether that Palestinian person is like the nephew of some guy from Damascus, and they didn't have a lot of history there, but he's living in this house and he's farming this land. Like, the length of the history shouldn't matter, you know. No, I mean, it doesn't another, to property rights, for example. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it, I, th- so I... But it matters in this ideological way that becomes very strange because then the Jews say, well, we were here before you, you know, yeah. which is, you know, but why does that just, what does that matter to that farmer, you know? Yeah, and I mean, in, in terms of going the other way, yeah, um, critics of Israel are invested in the um, idea or in a project of kind of severing the relationship of um, yeah. of Ashkenazi Jews, especially um, with the ancient Jews, which is super like ahistorical and and like basically historically fraudulent. Yeah, and so like, I and it, that always really annoys me because um, personally, like being not Zionist at all, but like I want to be able to say yes, I do believe that um, 
at least being partially Ashkenazi Jewish myself, that there is some kind of heritage or connection to the ancient Jews. Um, but that doesn't, I don't see why arguing for that necessarily needs to be um, totally subsumed Therefore, under the, okay under the like idea of who, demolishing some village. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like why does that why does that conversation have to be so completely subsumed under the that rubric of like who who has rights over this land? Because obviously, yeah, like like you're saying, I mean, this is this all happened pretty recently, and like you have there is evidence and documentary evidence and everything for the rights that Palestinians and and the, especially like the the descendants of of expelled Palestinians have to specific pieces of land. Um, so that's easy. But I mean, I think with other cases, like in America, it can get much harder because there is still recompense to be made here in America. And it's like, who do you give it to? It's the same question of like of reparations towards um, African-Americans, because some people make the argument, well, if you're an African-American in this country, but you're not an African descendant of slaves or American descendant, I forget, it's ADOS, but I can't forget, I forget what the A stands for. But if you can't prove that you're actually descended from slaves, for example, if your parents came from uh, Jamaica or something like, like that, that, yeah, um, then you then you don't deserve it. Um, and so the idea is like, well, wait a second. I mean, how, like, it's 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 all very thorny the this kind of topic so yeah i think it's like pretty complicated <laughs> and, and and it's interesting to talk about uh although i'm even less of an expert on it than you are so i don't see many um easy answers to those kinds of questions um but i do think that like applying the indigeneity concepts to palestinians it, it is a very interesting idea because like there, uh, like i i believe obviously that the palestinian people existed i do think that there's like there basically when people argue that they didn't exist they they try to apply categories or criteria for like what it means to exist as a as a people that that's a collective uh, that d don't really make sense and they're kind of biased um yeah so yeah i don't know i mean I, yeah I, I think just like I'll, I'll close the palestine thing and, and then close the whole thing is you know Jew, ashkenazi jews have had continuous connections to the land of you know israel and palestine going back they've been immigrating there um since long before political zionism none of those connections mean that like someone in nablus should have their house demolished you know but we shouldn't have to deny those connections either because we're in this kind of indigeneity race to the bottom and who's ever at the bottom gets the land you know yeah. and and it's like that's where that that conversation should be the hawaii conversation it's, it's like so different i mean that's why the pacific fascinates me so much. And a lot of my fascination with this, I have to give credit to a former colleague of mine who's a professor at Wesleyan now, her name's Yuting Huang, and she's Taiwanese, and she studies like uh, Chinese diasporas in around the Pacific, where Chinese are often coming in as settler laborers, and where in the hierarchy are they? You know, it's, at, in some situations, they're very, very low on the hierarchy, but they're above the natives. And in other situations, they're quite high on, in the hierarchy. Uh, and, and even now there's like this kind of neo-neo um, Chinese uh, colonialism in the in the Pacific. Mm. So like, you know, the Pacific is just so interesting to me because you have these kind of like what seem to the Western imagination to be these isolated places where humans have been, you know, on their own for trillions of eons and then and then white people came. But it's actually a lot more complicated. And so I'm going to end by by reading like the conclusion um, to that article by 
Velasquez Manoff in the Times, yes. where he was talking about how um, the Aloha spirit being that it's like also about it's not just like hey come here and take it easy and tolerate everybody, but it's also about giving back. And um, and he cites uh, he cites a few different scholars who talk about just islands in general emphasize ecological limits. So he says if you think that the resources of the world are limitless and that you don't really need other people to survive and that other people are disposable because the bounty is endless, you may be inclined to treat people as things. But if you're aware of how much you depend on others and how small and fragile the world is, you're likely to have a very different approach to human relationships. And so you saying kind of the, the, the racist tradition of the Euro-American expansion was, came from a, an imagination of we have this continent that no one even knew how big it was. It's, you know, they settled it the 200 years before they even reached like the Pacific with like Lewis and Clark or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the, I'm saying the Anglo-Americans. And if, you know, with a limitless con- continent came kind of limitless exploitation of other people to extract its bounty. But now, and I'm quoting him again, if we could begin to grasp the limits of the planet we live on, if we could understand that the earth itself is an island and that we are all dependent on one another for survival, perhaps we would see each other differently too and have less use for the very idea of race. Interesting. I would say to that, I mean, it is um, uh, a nice evocation there, but I would say like the, the world is definitely becoming smaller. Uh, especially in ecological terms, and there's like this growing realization that that natural resources are limited. But that could go in two ways. That could go in the way of what he's saying, where people should, you know, realize our interdependence and and mm-hmm. start to cooperate. That is kind of sounds like a Thomas Friedman um, <laughs> understanding <laughs> of the world and what globalization Ouch. is going to do. But on the other hand, there's another option, which is that people are going to realize, well, there's too many of us. And it's us or them, and I'm going to protect what's mine. And it's like a lot of people think that's what things like the wall, um, Trump's wall, are all about. It's like preparing for, preparing on some like either unconscious psychological level or or mm-hmm. actually explicitly by like the ruling class saying we're going to have to we're going to have to create a fortress to protect our our natural our resources and our um, place at the top of society. And that would require even more brutal forms of division and exploitation and could get even, you know, even worse. So I hope that he's right and that this kind of realization will will help. But as always, it is contingent um, on on what happens. Mm. Yeah, well, let's, let's hope yeah. for that. <laughs> and with that, I gotta go pick up my kids from daycare. So uh, yeah, it was nice talking to you about Hawaii is getting that Aloha spirit. Um, And we will be back the following week with a new episode. Uh Literally everything. Okay. Bye-bye guys. Bye Max.